This podcast is for mature audiences 18 and over and for entertainment purposes only. Please contact your healthcare provider before pursuing any of our topics discussed. You're listening to Eat, Play, Sex with Dr. Cat, the place to get play, sex, and nutrition talk straight to your ears. Hey, lovers, and welcome to another episode of Eat, Play, Sex. I'm sex expert, Dr. Cat. Now it's the holidays that time of year where we all spend snuggled together with our loved ones by the fireplace, drinking organic GMO-free hot chocolate and sharing our most favorite childhood memories. (laughs) No family drama, no angry texts, no stress, no arguments, (laughs) just peaceful time of bonding and together as a couple and all the incredible sex we could ever imagine. And I know the holidays are just so easy, right? Or maybe that's just my fantasy. (laughs) I've got the ultra cool Alicia Munoz here to give us some relationship pointers for on the battlefront. What? (laughs) Did I say battlefront? (laughs) I mean, the luscious daisy-filled open pastures of love that we all know that relationships are. But before we get to Alicia, lovers, You are the reason that I do this show. And I want to thank you for tuning in, for spreading the word, for leaving reviews and trying some of the suggestions that we recommend. I've been getting epic feedback from you all on these products that I use, even myself, because my goal here is to help you to eat, play, and sex better. So if you haven't already, please head to eatplaysex.com where you can subscribe to the show, connect with me, and read more about how you can up-level your sex, love, and vitality. Oh, I'm so excited about this episode. <laughs> We've got Alicia here. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and she's a licensed professional counselor and author of the book, No More Fighting. And she specializes in couplehood through the lens of Imago Relationship Therapy and Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy. She shares her insights on power of committed partnerships in blogs, prints, and online magazines. And that's how I found you. I was reading an article by... That Tammy Nelson, and she was just singing your praises about this book. And I was like, oh, I'm going to check this out. <laughs> it was really, really good. I really enjoyed your book. No more fighting. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Kat, I just have to say that I'm going to now change my bio to just ultra cool. It'll be like a one, one word bio. That, that was just the best intro I've ever received. Thank you. You're welcome. It just like puts you into this pretty package of perfectness. I I know. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. You don't need to know that I'm a licensed counselor. You don't need to know that I live up here in the East Coast. I'm just cool. That's right. (laughs) That's it. That's all that matters. Yeah. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. It is such, such a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, I should just let you know and let your listeners know that this is my virgin podcast. So this is my very first podcast ever. And I am so excited and um, it feels like like such an adventure already. We're popping our cherry. Yes. Oh, be gentle with me. It's it's consensual, I hope. It is. (laughs) Totally. Totally. (laughs) Oh my God. That's so great. Mm. And now I know that your holidays are super stress-free and picturesque, right? Right. Well, that was the description of my holidays that you just went through. Uh Everything, all that was missing was like the little, you know, glass of, of bubbling champagne in one hand. But oh, otherwise, there you go. To a tea. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Southern California and I do have, I do have a fireplace. And last okay. night I was wearing my giraffe onesie and I was curled up <laughs> drinking. I'm not even kidding you either. Oh, I was okay. <laughs> now I'm jealous. <laughs> I was drinking a cacao and mm-hmm. which is like a fancy form of hot chocolate, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and of course. Like SoCal, you know, they were yeah. so cool. <laughs> oh my God. So, so great. I wish you'd worn that onesie for this podcast. I oh really do. God. 
should do that. (laughs) Such a good idea. I will do that next time. Awesome. But in reality, our, I think the holidays bring up a lot of stress and a lot of fighting and a lot of tension because yes. we put so much expectations on ourselves. Yes. And Absolutely. then we're, and we're experiencing our families again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing about holidays is that, and families is that a lot of throughout the most of the year, we can just kind of get triggered by our partners and they, they kind of are their mom and dad stand-ins and they can kind of recreate our pasts. Um, but during the holidays, we kind of get the double whammy of having our partners with us, but also really dealing with our actual relatives. And yay! Yay! So it's, yeah, it's all magnified. <laughs> so not only do we have this partner who's dressed as our mom, <laughs> but we all actually have our actual mom. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And wow. Yeah, it's intense. And then, of course, there's all the kind of cultural stuff that gets layered on um, in terms of what the media kind of presents as uh, an ideal holiday. You know, the the music we listen to, all the the kind of uh, gifts that are being kind of flashed in front of us and mm-hmm. all of that buildup. Um, it's just a setup often for for uh, fights between partners. Yeah. Yeah. And now I do want to premise this. This was before the show you and I were talking and I was like, you know, I get some people who tell me they're like, oh yeah, we never fight. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I don't know that that's actually healthy. (laughs) Yeah. So, So we want to premise this with there is, you know, having fighting in a relationship can be healthy. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I had um, really, I had mixed feelings about the title of this book because um, the last thing that I want to, to kind of make people think or, or perpetuate is the myth that, you know, relationships should be, should be placid or easy or non-contentious or people should just, you know, be in harmony all the time. It's, it's really, I mean, it really, the title should be something more like, you know, fight a lot, fight hard, and then <laughs> learn not to fight. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, learn to fight fair and learn to pick your fights. But that, mm-hmm. that, that wasn't, that didn't really capture the 1.2 seconds of people's attention that the, the title needed to have. Yeah. Amazon was like, shorten this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's more about learning how to fight more productively it sounds like yes it's it's about learning how to fight more productively and also to to kind of create less damage in fights and Mm -hmm. you use fights as opportunities to understand yourself better and to grow the kind of partnership that you want to grow oh my god I'm all about that Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Creating the exact love lives that we want instead of perpetuating yes. the ones that we don't want. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. But sometimes to get the love lives that we want, we have to kind of um, face our demons and uh, l- sort of tolerate all of the discomfort of, you know, not feeling turned on, not feeling satisfied, not getting our needs met um, and being frustrated and feeling like we can't control our partners. Mm. You mean we can't control our partners? <laughs> is that, is that news to that? you? <laughs> I actually thought I did pretty well the last two relationships. <laughs> or maybe that's why they ended. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I am so with you. I, uh, I have, I'm guilty of being the world's biggest control freak. And I think it's, it's actually pretty widespread. You know, we're, we're, um, we're kind of trained from really early on to try to uh, get our needs met indirectly by manipulating other people's uh, reactions to us or presenting a perfect facade or pleasing mm. other people so oh. that they will please us. And so it's very indirect. And all of that, are, that's all forms of control that we use with our partners, often mm. unconsciously. Oh, of course. And that actually makes me wonder, what are some of the common walls that we might hit in regards to, um, you know, whether it's fighting or whether it's communication, what kind of things do you see as a common pattern for people? 
in terms of um, the walls that people hit in communication, I mean, a lot of the time our own pain blinds us to our partner's experience. So that's one really, really common wall that we think that because we're in pain, our partner is intentionally hurting us. Um, and mm-hmm. I see that a lot. And I think another one is that we we express our needs in a way that doesn't honor the other person's reality. So like I might say, you know, you know, to my partner, you're totally checked out. You've been checked out for years. Our kids think you're a jerk, you know, and really what I, what I want is for, for him or her to respond to me with more intimacy, to be more present. So we don't express our needs in a way that our partner can hear, you know, like that, that last example, what I really should say is I miss you. I really miss you. I, I want to be close to you. Why is that so hard to say? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me. I mean, that definitely was less words, so that would make a better title. You know, <laughs> right? That's true. Than it saying you're an asshole. <laughs> like, uh huh. Yeah. 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 You never do this. Yeah. Why? So we, we have these feelings or we have the, uh, this experience, but, but we choose to focus on what's wrong with the person right? or how they're hurting us. Right. How yeah, does we, that help us? <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't. What it does is it, um, it raises our partner's defenses so that they then are no longer open to hearing us or connecting with us. Um, they often will then react and begin a kind of defensive ping pong ball match of defenses. And the, mm-hmm. and, and it's a downward spiral from there. So it really doesn't help. Um, we do it because we've learned these defenses and um, they're protective. They were protective in our, often in our childhoods and they, they no longer serve us. So we, you know, that's where the kind of growth comes in. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I think, I feel like in this society, a lot of, the, it's almost like we're feeling phobic or emotion, yes. emotionally phobic. Oh my God. <laughs> I would hundred percent agree. The only thing I would disagree with is the almost. I mean, we are oh. emotionally phobic. We are <laughs> feeling phobic, feeling, we're terrified of, of feeling. And, and it's, you know, I mean, I'm not going to spout theories at you, but, you know, you can go watch Brene Brown's video. I've watched it, you know, 300 times. And it's, yeah. it's so vulnerable to, to feel. To feel is, is hard because we have to surrender control. There's control again. And mm-hmm. we have to accept that we are these complex, highly sensitive, highly attuned to our environments, human beings, and we cannot control our feelings. All we can do is notice them, honor them, witness them, give them space. We don't like doing that. That's so interesting because aren't we, don't we also receive messages or at least I've seen messages where people are like, you can choose your, how you feel or like, like, oh, you're angry. You can choose calm and peacefulness. And I'm like, does that really work? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. There are so many contradictory messages and, um, you know, I think that's it. There are layers and layers in the, of, of control in this culture. And I think that's another form of control saying, well, we can choose to feel X and not to feel Y. And, you know, maybe on some level that's true, but I think that really before you can choose a feeling, you need to see and and experience what you're actually feeling. Mm, yeah. Like allow allowance of it to be there or validating yourself. Like, okay, exactly. this is actually how I feel. And then I can choose how I feel. Yes. yes. That makes sense. Totally. totally. In, in your book, you really get into this in the very beginning and you talk about what I really liked. And this was an aha for me. There was, you had this feeling wheel in there. Mm, mm, yes. Oh my God. I have it right in front of me on my table. I'm pulling it out right now. Yeah, I, I'm a big um, uh, believer in the feeling wheel. <laughs> what is that? Um, the feeling wheel is something that when I when I worked at Bellevue Hospital uh, with people who survived uh, 9-11, we, I ran groups. And one of the things we used in the groups was this feeling wheel. And it was one of the ways that we help people work through their PTSD symptoms. So um, it, it's really a way of having a, a visual of words and then connecting with your own inner 
felt sense. And Mm -hmm. so you're sort of toggling back and forth between the words, scared, sad, angry, joyful, peaceful, powerful, numb, shocked. And, and you're not that quickly, but you're kind of going back and forth and you're seeing, huh, is what I'm feeling numb? Is it scared? Is it sad? You're, you're really having this dialogue with your own inner reality and the feeling wheel, it helps you do that. It's a tool that um, helps you connect with your feelings. Mm. And it gives so many different, almost like layers of the same feeling. Yes. Yes. Or intensity, different intensities. Yes, it absolutely does. You know, it's, it's sort of like, um, uh, the, the linguistic version of a rainbow, you know, a rainbow has seven colors. I think, I hope I'm saying the right number there. Um, Mm -hmm. and feelings like scared has a lot of nuances to it. You know, are you, Mm -hmm. Feel, do you feel vulnerable? Do you feel shocked? Do you feel helpless? Do you feel insignificant? So there's a way in which like we, we can, we can tune into our feelings and begin to get really curious about it, about whatever we're feeling. And, and, and through that, just know ourselves better, mm. know who we are better. I like that. How does that, how is that helpful for relationships or in regards to like, uh, arguments or fighting? I love, I love your questions, Kat. It's like, you're like, <laughs> I just want to take you home. <laughs> oh, I am a therapist. Oh yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it helps because if you are not able to pick up on the nuances of your own feelings and tune into your own feelings and, recognize them, honor them, experience them, there's no way you're going to be able to do that for your partner. You know, it's important. It's important to do it for yourself first. That's, that's, I like that. And I, what's coming to my mind is all the times when I was younger, because I used to, um, anger was not something that I was comfortable with. So I would say things like Mm -hmm. I'm frustrated or I'm annoyed or I'm this. And I wouldn't actually say that I'm mad. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a big one. And I think it's, it's especially, um, I mean, I know this is a bit of a, a kind of, uh, gender opinion, but I think that for women, that's often the case with anger is that it's not really an acceptable emotion for us to feel as women. So we mm-hmm. find other ways, other code code words for it, you know, that are gentler or less intimidating or less threatening, or that will, you know, allow us to maintain our connection to the tribe, you know, oh, we're not angry. We're, we're just irritated or, or we're frustrated. Oh, wow. But, it helps us stay in tune with the tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Would it, so these are like defenses or these are, you know, the relationship that we have with the, with the emotions impacts. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it talk about that more. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really belonging is such a fundamental developmental need. You know, it's mm-hmm. really one of our first needs. Like we have to attach, we have to connect um, first to our, our our first caregiver or caregivers, you know, um, to our extended family, to our community, to our peers, in our professional lives. Like we're always finding ways to attempt to fit in and belong. And, you know, part of that is the socialization process. And it's different for, for boys and girls and men and women. And for women, when we uh, generally, when, when we express anger, we receive a much more negative response from the world than mm. than men do. So, to you know, to stay connected, we we suppress the anger, or we sugarcoat it, or we turn it into something else, so that we won't people won't look at us and say you're a bitch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. yeah. No. Yes, I'm a I'm a badass bitch, <laughs> right? Sit <laughs> with more gumption. <laughs> yeah. 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 So in, in this emotional experience, some one thing that I heard you say in there is that we make up these some of these things in our heads. Yeah. Like yeah. stories, like stories. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, that's one of the the 
the lead lines or that's one of the tools that I use in sessions with couples that I learned in my Imago certification training. And it's, it's to really, to say to, to yourself or to say to another person, like, and the story that I make up is so, you know, we're always making up stories. The problem is we don't realize their stories. We think, or we assume that, that because I believe it, it's true. Mm-hmm. So, um, being aware of the stories that you tell yourself about both yourself and your partner is really important in a relationship because otherwise they're, it's, they're like, um, I would say like a subtle toxin that's, that's eating away at your connection. You know, mm. you know, if I have a story about my husband that, um, he's really selfish, he's always late. Um, you know, he doesn't care about me. Then when he gets a flat tire and he arrives 20 minutes late to, you know, our dinner, um, I'm not going to be very compassionate to what happened to him. I'm going to be walled off. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be frustrated. Um, so it's really important to be aware of what stories might be playing out that, that are blinding you to your partner. Mm, and influencing your behaviors, like you're saying. Totally. Oh, wow. Are there common stories that people will tell in, in their own minds? Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Tell me. (laughs) It's so funny because when you asked that question, um, I was having a flashback to the beginning of this podcast and that, you know, that scene with the onesie, well, maybe you weren't wearing the onesie, but you know, with the fireplace and, and just thinking that wouldn't it be lovely if our stories were, I'm enough. Um, you know, I'm enough. Um, you're enough. We can make this work. Um, you know, we can, we can fight and repair with so much ease, you know, Mm. men are trustworthy. Women are trustworthy. Um, you know, we, we deserve pleasure and, and we, we can be happy. Like those are not the stories that we're telling ourselves. Yeah. No. No, we're telling ourselves other stories that are usually, you know, the world can't be trusted. You can't be trusted. I can't be trusted. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough. Um, we'll never be happy. We'll never make this work. Uh, I'm a failure. You're a failure. And, and, and those stories aren't conscious, but they, they underlie a lot of our, our reactivity and our fears. Mm, that makes sense. And I'm so I'm thinking on a somatic level, even. So if these are the stories that we're telling us, how our bodies are uh, being impacted, totally. you know, if we're holding, I'm not enough, like how our body responds to that probably yes. tenses up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and even if you aren't aware of how your body is reacting, your partner senses it your partner Mm -hmm. feels it. And, you know, the twitch of an eyebrow, you know, a little kind of flicker of your jaw clenching, all of these, you know, the way you're holding your arms, the way you're, the way you're bearing your posture, um, your voice, you know, it's our, our, we're always communicating, um, our stories. Mm, Yeah. So things don't actually stay in our heads. (laughs) No, No, we think they do, but they don't. (laughs) Contrary to our own belief. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So how do couples help navigate this or how do they even identify that they're in a story mode? Yeah. Um, that's a great, great question. You know, read, I mean, book. read my book. That's so that's <laughs> one way. Um, you know, is, and, and I say that facetiously, but, uh, but it's really doing, doing the work and the work for some people is reading, reading lots of books or reading one or two good books. Um, it might be listening to these podcasts regularly, you know, um, it might be, uh, yoga, it might be meditation retreats you know, it might be exercise and movement. Um, uh, really it's, it's, it's different for everybody. It's usually a whole bunch of different things that, that you're, you're just trying out to develop self-care, to develop awareness, to prioritize your own experience of, of being a human being and being alive rather than just being task focused and goal focused. Ooh, how does that help? The self-care and the, the, yeah. 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 I mean, it, self-care 
you know, I love, it's like, you know, how realtors are like location, location, location. Like I feel that way about self-care. It's, it's, it's like, it's all self-care is so critical um, in, in a relationship and people, sometimes couples come in and they're like, what, like we're, you know, I, I, I'm with this person so they could care for me. You know, um, I, I committed to this person so that they could take care of my needs and they could help me and nurture me and see me. And it's, again, I think it's another myth that we are saturated in culturally is that we fall in love and we hook up and we get with somebody and we commit because our needs are going to get met. This person's going to make us whole and meet our needs. And that's not how it works. So self-care is about taking ownership for your own moods, your own well-being, your own, your own longings, your own desire level, you know, um, your own health, your own intimacy needs. Like it's, it's really about owning it. Mm. So how does somebody, because this is, especially in partnerships, we're getting these messages of, okay, I get into this relationship so you can make my needs and you can make me feel good and make me feel safe and all this stuff. And you're bringing in, Hey, now I want you to own your own shit. (laughs) Right. Right. It's not, yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, message. And, and, you know, I, I, I say it for your listeners with, uh, at the, at the risk of sounding super like woo woo and cheesy, like I say it with a lot of love because, um, it's yes, your partner will meet some of your needs, may meet some of your needs and hopefully, you know, through, through work and over time will meet more of your needs. But unless you can start to sort of shift the framework a bit to, where your partner is really, they're going to trigger your needs, you know, whether they're going to meet them or not is kind of like the icing on the cake. Yes, hopefully they will. They're going to trigger your needs. And then that Mm -hmm. is, is really like, um, it, that's the first step to, to recognizing, oh my God, I, I have value. I have needs. I, I, I have a right to fulfillment. I have a right to pleasure. I have a right to connection. Mm. So that's really where the self-care comes in. Mm-hmm. So how does somebody, because when we go into relationships, there is this level of depending on one another and, and having needs, right? Yeah. So how does somebody find the balance in that? Or how, you know, how hmm. do we allow somebody to be there and take care of our needs? Oh my God. Such a, such a great question. And, you know, if I had the answer to that, um, uh, <laughs> in the next book, in the next book, right. Maybe. <laughs> um, I think that's exactly what the journey is, what you just, that question it's in itself is the journey. It's finding the balance for you in your unique partnership and your unique relationship mm-hmm. between your needs, the relationship's needs, and your partner's needs. You're juggling three kind of different entities in a way. Um, the million yeah. dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because what I'm thinking of is this, and maybe this is more of an LA thing. No, I think it's a human thing, but this, this concept of intimacy I love that. More of an LA thing. I don't know. (laughs) Just say that. I've never been to LA, so that's so cool. So in LA, everyone's really intimate. (laughs) No, I was gonna say the opposite. Like struggling with intimacy issues. Oh, okay. (laughs) You've never dated out here, clearly. No, I have not. (laughs) No, but I was about to get on a plane and check it out. I was like, oh, it's it's like intimacy is growing on trees over there. So, and it's actually something, it's a major theme that I see in my clients because people will be like, oh, he's just not, he doesn't open up to me or, you know, all this stuff or, you know, this fear of intimacy or this, this seeking intimacy and what you're saying around these, this concept of needs is coming up. And I just immediately think about that. Um, How do you think, or is that a pattern that we see across humans around around humans <laughs> as if that's like an interspecies kind of <laughs> issue it is indeed a pattern we see with humans yes i can fully vouch for that um i mean the, so what i hear you saying is is just this 
this kind of push pull between one partner kind of wanting closeness and one partner pulling for space or distance. And that, that, that kind of creates this tension around, around intimacy, you know, and not being satisfied. What exactly is, is why do we struggle with this? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good, it's again, just a really good question. And I mean, there are many reasons, there are many, many reasons for, for it. I think my bias is that we're heavily influenced by what created safety for us in our childhood. So that if connection and intimacy felt safe for us, um, often, you know, we'll feel kind of a healthy need for intimacy. If we were, say, neglected or we, we didn't get our intimacy needs met, you know, we'll, we, we'll respond in one or two ways. Like either we'll kind of become hyper-independent where we don't need anybody, we don't need intimacy, or we will pursue and chase and demand and um, extort and, you know, insist on intimacy with our partners. Oh my God, I was totally the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, of course you were. So was I. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that we're and that's just one, one lens. I think there are a lot of other lenses, uh, but I, that's kind of the pattern that I see playing out with people. And just to add, there's another pattern, which is that sometimes when we're raised, our, our well-meaning caregivers use us for their intimacy needs. So they, they need closeness or they need either emotional or physical intimacy. And of course the really toxic forms of this are, are physical and sexual abuse, but Mm -hmm. it's, so if we had that kind of experience of intimacy, of course, we're not going to feel safe being intimate as adults and, and intimacy, it's, it's going to feel dangerous. And so you might have one partner where intimacy feels like it creates safety and another partner where it feels like life and death. The more Mm -hmm. you gaze into their eyes, you know, or the more you, you stay close, the more endangered they feel. Mm. What exactly would we constitute as intimacy? Like what is intimacy? Mm. So I, I mean, I, in my book, I define it as um, our capacity to be known. So I think of intimacy as our capacity to be known by by another. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would just kind of add that it's also a kind of parallel by our capacity to know ourselves. So the more we can know ourselves, the more we can also know another, the more intimate we can be with our own experience the more we can embrace another person's experience. I like that. I like that. I think in my, in my office, people get confused. Uh, I say intimacy and they immediately think sexuality. But mm. what you're saying here is like, it's this ability to allow somebody to really see you. Yes, absolutely. And sexuality can be, and often is a really big part of that. Yeah. A form of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I, this is one thing that I tell my clients, or I just I don't want to tell anybody who will listen to me, <laughs> but intimacy is, is more than just these past stories that we have, or these traumatic stories that we've had, but it's these moment-to-moment contractions that we have, or these moment-to-moment, um, using what you were saying earlier, vulnerabilities that we have. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. That's beautiful. Right? Moment-to-moment. Did you say interactions or contractions? Contractions. Ah, uh, that's really beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. like a ebb and flow. And how do we discover what our level of comfort is for intimacy? If we all have these different levels and some of us figure it out, some of us want it. Like how do how can we discover this? You can in my book I suggest it's a pretty common exercise, eye gazing exercise. So that's really one way to do it with your partners to sit face to face and maybe set a timer, a time limit and, um, and just really be present in your body. And then when you're ready, gaze into each other's eyes and notice, notice your level of, of comfort, your level of anxiety, notice what thoughts come up 
you know, notice how fidgety you get, uh, notice the pull to make jokes or look away. All of that is information that you can gather that will kind of give you a sense of how comfortable or uncomfortable you are with intimacy. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And can people change their level of comfort with intimacy? Absolutely. And thank God, um, because <laughs> yeah, not I mean, just stuck. you're not stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the work. A lot of uh, what you do and, you know, what healers do and coaches and therapists uh, and, and many others who are pulled to, to this kind of work, they, it's, it's really about developing, creating more, more intimacy and, you know, the way to do it, there are many ways, but I think you'll find that across the board in techniques and frameworks ranging from talk therapy to breath work, to movement, to yoga, you know, to athletics, or it's really about developing and strengthening the relationship between your mind and your body, between your awareness and your felt experience, that's going to help to expand intimate, you know, your intimacy level. Mm. In what way? How does that help people with their intimacy? Well, it helps because it, it brings you into a more integrated state. You know, we tend to live in our heads a lot and be very cognitively oriented. Oh my God, for real. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And partly because that's, you know, that's where we can, we're like, we have amazing brains, like we can do so much with them. And, and I think that that focus on the mind and also culturally the way it's reinforced, it just disconnects us from this other form of knowing and wisdom and intelligence, which is our somatic intelligence and our emotional intelligence. So anything that can begin to kind of shift the balance to grow that, that other wisdom that you have, that bodily wisdom that, you know, some people might call it spiritual wisdom or intuition, um, that that's going to help you become more intimate because it's going to help you be present with all of you, not just in your head. Mm, mm. Like what would be a good example of when you get to that point where you have good intimacy with yourself? Hmm. Yeah. So that's a good question. So an example of that, I mean, I think it's an ongoing process for everyone. I know it certainly is for me. I mean, I can go weeks where I'm not at all intimate with myself and I'll just kind of notice that I'm not sleeping well and I'm very tense. I have body aches and pains and I'm, you know, my mood is, is very low. And so it's, I think an example of it is first of all, being able to notice when you're off track to notice when you're feeling like shit, you know, when you're, when you're down, when you're reactive and irritable and to be kind to yourself and, and sort of reorient yourself to one of those tools that you might use to, to feel more present in your life. And, you know, so I think, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's, that's sort of an important part of it is being able to recognize when you're off track and without beating yourself up to be able to get back on track using whatever methods work for you to feel more embodied. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially after reading your book, because you talk a lot about these concepts of uh, triggers and projections in arguments. And so it makes sense if you better know yourself and you're tuning into, well, how am I feeling and how that may be coming up in these arguments? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you explain those concepts a little more to our listeners? Sure, sure. So triggers, uh, you know, like, like an actual trigger, they, they're, they represent a mechanism that starts a chain reaction, an emotional chain reaction over which you feel like you really don't have a lot of control. So usually they don't end well, you know? Um, and so when, 
when you recognize your triggers, it means you can prepare for them. You know, you can be ready for them. You can be on the lookout for them. You can be aware of the stories that come up when, mm-hmm. when you're triggered and you can respond in a way that's less of a chain reaction and more of a choice. So that's what, what I don't know if, that, if that's too abstract, but that's sort of what a, a trigger is. No, I think that's really empowering to be able to know what, what it is that's causing. Yeah. I love that word chain reaction, like how our body is unconsciously reacting to these things. And we can, by knowing this and we can empower ourselves to respond. Absolutely. Absolutely. And everybody is going to have very different triggers and, you know, your partner is going to trigger you. It's just inevitable. And so knowing what triggers you, you know, is it a tone in their voice? You know, is it them checking their cell phone at dinner? You know, is it, is it the way they kind of cozy up to a friend at a party and forget about you for 20 minutes? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, is it the way they don't, appreciate you for all the work that you do and everything that, you know, all the effort you make uh, in your family. So knowing what your triggers are is going to help you, first of all, be self-compassionate and feel the feelings, you know, pull out your feeling wheel and identify those feelings and honor them. Like, yeah, they're here. And Mm -hmm. then it's going to help you communicate those feelings to your partner in a way where you're not just saying, you know, you're such a jerk. Why did you ditch me at the party? Like you were late again. Like, you know, (laughs) it's going to help you say, I feel inadequate and um, lonely. And the story that I make up is that, you know, you're bored of me and you're not interested in me. And that story makes me feel really, really scared of losing you. And what I really need is I need you to look me in the eye and tell me you love me and give me a hug. Oh my God. Can everybody get their (laughs) notebook out right now and like rewind and write that again? (laughs) How did you do that? How did you know what to say? (laughs) I think everybody's wondering that. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. Lots of practice. <laughs> Decades of practice. <laughs> Is there, because I know Imago does a lot of, they they have statements for people to help them, right? Yes, they do. They do. So there, yeah, there definitely is, you know, a you could say a formula that you can use and Imago certainly has a lot of them. And I think many different, um, I mean, I know CBT has different formats and different forms of therapy um, use different formats, but the basic kind of, I would say like algorithm or formula for it, you know, is to say like when, even though we're not supposed to use you statements, but when you engage in that behavior, you know, when you, turn away from me and leave me in the middle of the party and go talk to someone else. Um, The story that I make up is, and then that's when you own your story, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then the way that makes me feel and, you know, what I would prefer you do instead or what would help me feel more connected to you. So you're kind of breaking it down, but it takes time and it's hard to do on the spot. So it's, that's why it's good to get a lot of practice. A lot of practice, a lot of practice, a lot of practice. <laughs> or even hey, just, <laughs> hey, baby, hold on. I'm going to practice this for a moment. Pull out your GP. <laughs> when you. <laughs> exactly. Hold on. I'll be back in 10 minutes. <laughs> Put it on your phone. <laughs> Alicia's going to come up with a phone app next. <laughs> yep. With the script of everything you need to say. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's only going to like be a little bit awkward in, in the midst of your life to use it. <laughs> but luckily in your book, you have some really great ideas for mid-argument though, too. Yes. Yes, I do. I do. I, I admit, I, I put a lot of effort into that um, because that's a, that's a real challenge to, um, to sort of know what to do when you're in the middle of a fight. And um, I've had that question from a lot of couples and haven't always been able to answer it because when you're in the middle of a fight, you've got cortisol flooding your system, you know, you're in fight, flight, freeze. You are basically to your 
you know, to the, the, the famous amygdala in the back of your primitive brainstem, you are in a life or death situation. So it's, you know, it's hard to be able to respond in a calculated and calm way in those moments. So I do come up with some ideas for couples in those situations. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have you're gonna have to beg me if you want me to tell you. Oh my god! <laughs> you're gonna have to put on the onesie. <laughs> Please, can you tell us how to do this? <laughs> Give us the key codes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that feels so good. Um, yeah. So <laughs> she's so manipulative. Oh my I know, god! I'm so <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I admit. Um, so, I mean, one. So one of the things that is, it sounds like a little bit of a, I hope it's not like a disappointment to you, but it, basically when you find yourself in that situation, leave, like leave the argument, it's really stop, you know, like when you are mid fight and it's spiraling downward and, you know, you just keep talking and he or she keeps shutting down or, or reacting to you. It's really important to recognize this isn't going nowhere good fast. And say to your partner, you know what? I want to keep the space safe. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to hurt myself. I'm going to take a five-minute break or a 10-minute break. So really taking a break is, is important. And um, yeah. And then there's also another thing you can do, which might seem a little strange or cheesy, but no, you're, you're from LA. You live in LA. This, oh, this will be right up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> another thing you can do and this is my personal favorite thing is to do a, what I call a redo. And a redo is like a second take of a movie scene. So you essentially are in the midst of it with your, your partner. And one of you has to be conscious enough to say, Hey, you know, this, this isn't working. Let's rewind. Let's redo this. Let's, let's go for a second take. And then you have to cooperate. So you can't just be like, fuck that. You know, I don't want to do that. That sucks. I, I want to keep yelling at you. Or I want to keep sulking or I want to keep doing whatever defense I'm doing. You need yeah. to, to say, okay, you know, let, let's do a redo. And then you literally reenact the scene. So, you know, instead of like just glaring at your computer and, you know, grumbling hello when your partner comes in the door you might look up and say, hi, sweetheart. It's so good to see you. I've missed you, you know? And then they might say, oh, wow, you know, I've missed you too. And let's, let's, uh, let's connect in a minute. Let me just take off my coat. And so you'll redo the scene that triggered the rupture, but you'll redo it the way you wished it had gone the first time around. Oh my God. I love that. It's like permission to make mistakes. Yes. And come back and choose how we want to do it. I swear if somebody did that to me though, like, <laughs> and they're like, hi, and you know, like right after the, the, the retake, I would start bawling. I would probably start crying. I'd be like, oh my God, you see me? That's all I wanted. <laughs> right? Well, it, you know, it happens. And it, that would be actually not that of an abnormal of a re- reaction because when we get what we want, it often brings up grief. It brings up sadness because really what we want often feels like it's not that big. It's not that big. Like we just want to be seen, to be loved, to be known, to be respected and honored and valued or whatever, you know, that, that is such a quote right there. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. It's like all these fights and stuff that we're doing is, that's the underlying thing that we're trying to get to. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is. It is. And I like the redos too, because they often can bring humor to a situation. You know, I mean, it's not like the things that we fight with our partners about are like, um, incredibly like grand and magnificent arguments. Often it's like, you forgot to put the freaking bag in the trash can. You know, why did you lose the keys again? You know, um, like, you know, they're, they're these things that are feel minor. So uh-huh. if you do the redo, you can bring a little humor to it. Oh, that's awesome. Any more tips for mid argument? Yeah. So, um, other tips for mid argument. I, uh, this is one that, you know, again, is sort of like a, a little bit of an, 
I would say one you should take with a grain of salt, you know, it's like, don't drink and drive kind of thing. Like um, it, it's, it's what I call a vent box and vent boxes are a consciously created container with your partner where you, you walk in the door or something happens between you and you're feeling frustrated and irritated, or, you know, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed or feels like life is just not going your way. And rather than picking a fight with your partner or getting into a push pull, you actually own that you're in a bad place. Then you say to your partner, I, I need a vent box. You know, you can call it something else if you don't like that, that term, but basically then you ask for maybe a minute where you just bitch and moan and yell and complain and whine and throw a tantrum. And your partner holds that space for you, which means they, they don't judge you. They, they witness you. Uh, they affirm you. You have a right to feel this way. And when the vent box is over and you've reached your time, you kind of shake it off and do something pleasurable, you know, kiss, hug, like have a pomegranate, you know, go for a walk. I don't know. Like, so it's a way of really trying to, what, what the point of this is that you want to give your, your anger a space to be felt, but you don't want to do it in a way that is going to hurt your partner. So event boxes are a little bit delicate in the sense that, you know, your, your partner has to be comfortable witnessing uh, your anger, and you have to be able to be somewhat sensitive to how it impacts them as well. Mm, wow. And, and I hear this a time and time again throughout what you share with people is there's just so much permission and allowance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for noticing that and highlighting that um, because that that's really what what I'm hoping to convey to couples with this book is... Um, that, you know, to be human, to be ourselves, to be real in relationship, it's not about impersonating some kind of cultural auto automaton or robot or myth <clears throat> of what it means to be, you know, a good partner, a good husband, a good wife, like, uh, you know, a, a good mate, a good boyfriend, a good girlfriend. It's, it's about embracing like ourselves in all of our messiness. Mm. There was a, there was a term in there. There's actually a whole chapter that you have on this, this concept of loving mm -hmm. imperfectly. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's really what this is about and, and what, what I'd like to, you know, sort of, I guess, without sounding too grandiose, like that, that would be one of my missions uh, in my work. It's to really, foster and support people in, in loving imperfectly and, yeah. and loving imperfectly is it's the recognition that there's no there, there, like we're always in process. We're always growing and expanding and yeah. And it's not about kind of making it and then we get to stop and just, you know, be in that vision you presented at the beginning of this podcast and okay, it's all perfect. Now we're always going to slip. We're always going to have moments that, that, that are, you know, our less perfect selves kind of showing. And I think if we re sort of shift our expectations about what love is, it'll be easier to, to love because love is loving imperfectly. Mm. Mm hmm. Like this acceptance of the ebbs and flows of the mistakes of the, these triggers and the projections that you were sharing and yes. slipping up sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I tell, I always tell myself, this is the mantra that I tell myself. It's that it, because we can be hard on ourselves and we're like, Oh my God, today I'm just not evolved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's so much evolution in just being okay with not being okay. Yes, there is. Is that your mantra? Yeah, it is. It's I okay. I love your mantra. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I just go on. It's okay. I'm going to borrow it. <laughs> it's okay not to be okay. 
it's okay not to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. love that. I love that. I have, uh, uh, one that's a little shorter cause my memory tends to not be as good as I want it to be. So mine is just this. And I know that sounds uh-huh. like, like, you're like, okay, where's, <laughs> but just this, just this, when I say just this, it means all I got to do is be in this moment. I don't have to figure out the future. I don't have to worry about the past. All I have to do is is be here. So just this, this is it. Oh, I love that. That's going to be my next tattoo <laughs> on my ankle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the symbolism of that's going to be, but <laughs> it's going to be my next one. <laughs> All right. I like it. And you know, I like the ankle. I, are you sure you can, I, what would I, what would it take to get it up like onto your like your shoulder, my, my shoulder <laughs> on your thigh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be too flirty there. So I thought I figured I'd, I'd take the shoulder. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Mm. And there's just, uh, there's uh, this, just this, that mantra is just, um, what comes to my mind is this concept of forgiveness too, to not be anywhere, uh, you know, expecting yourself to be anywhere or anyone else except here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, forgiveness, I mean, I I don't remember the exact quote, but Jack Kornfield has a quote about forgiveness that, uh, that sort of forgiveness is about letting go of the past. It's about Mm. giving up all hope of a different past. Oof. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just this, yeah, just this is really about accepting that the past can't be changed and the future can't be really, you know, known and until it it evolves. So really what we have is the present moment. Mm. Uh, What's coming to my mind right now, this this whole concept of forgiveness can be really hard for people. And you, you write a whole chapter on that as well. Yeah, it it is really hard. And part of it, I think, is the pressure that we put on ourselves to forgive. That makes it really hard. You know, there's this misconception that like forgiveness is something we can do, like it's a skill that we can like, just like grit our teeth and get there. And I mean, I think forgiveness is much more of a side effect. It's much more of something that happens once we've, we've really done our grief work and we've really felt our feelings, which may be really hard to feel. They may be rage. They may be, you know, uh, murderous rage. It may be very, there may be deep, deep, overwhelming grief that comes up. And so, you know, we can't skip over that and just forgive. It's um, forgiveness comes as, a, as an after effect of doing, doing our work. Doing the work, doing yeah. the work, which actually brings me to this last piece that I want to bring up because this is really important. This whole thing has been epic, uh, but there's- I'm going to put that on my ankle, epic. <laughs> <laughs> epic dot, period at the end. <laughs> the Because um, in your book, you talk about the experience of affairs that couples can go through. So when we think about fighting, that's a major one. Yeah. 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 Affairs definitely are one of the big ones. What do you think? So if a couple has experience, they're navigating an affair and they're deciding to work through this together. What do you help them focus on to work on? Well, I, I like a model that I read about in Tammy Nelson's book, um, The New Monogamy, about, you know, that the idea that like affairs go through typically, not necessarily in a linear way, but they go through a crisis phase, they go through an insight phase, and they go through a vision phase. So what you work on or what you focus on in, a, in an affair has a lot to do with which phase you're in. Um, so that if you're still in crisis and you're emotionally hemorrhaging and you don't feel like you have any ground underneath you, you can't trust anything and your whole, you know, you've been shaken up by, by this, it's, we're going to focus on something very different. We're going to focus on, you know, 
self-care, self-regulation. We're going to focus on, you know, um, being able to make room with support for all the grief that's coming up or the anger. And then if you're in the insight phase, you found, you found some of that tentative ground, you've regained some degree of trust, maybe not in your partner necessarily, or, you know, it, it might be more or in yourself, but it might be more like this willingness to trust again. Mm. You're going to, you're going to focus on something else in that phase. And then in the vision phase, you're going to be more present and future oriented as you continue to work through both like the remorse for the, the, the person who engaged in the affair and, and forgiveness mm. will, will become more of a possibility uh, for mm-hmm. the person who, who felt betrayed or was betrayed. Mm. Yeah. And, and again, coming back to that whole concept of forgiveness and how that can be hard for us, but like what you quoted there, it's, it's letting go of the hope of a different past yeah. and just moving, moving forward with, 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 with willingness. I heard yeah. you use that word. Yes. The willingness to trust, the willingness to forgive. I may not know how to trust or forgive, right. <laughs> but if the willingness is there. Right. And that that's a great, great word to focus in on because you don't have to, all you have to do is be willing and and just rest in that willingness and in, you know, in that space of of kind of connection with your partner and and, you know, there's a lot of um, surrender. There's a lot of vulnerability. It's shaky. It, it's painful. It's, um, it's real. Um, and, and it's sort of like you're, you have this opportunity to choose that messy, real, painful, imperfect love over a fantasy that wasn't real. Fantasy mm. love. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, I think everybody needs to replay that again (laughs) because there's just, we're seeing affairs so much, especially in in my practice. And I think a lot of people see that and think that that's my bottom line. But then once they reach it, they're like, wait, maybe I want to work through this, but how could I even work through this? How could I even trust this person again? How can I, you know, do this again? Right. Right. And it's possible, but it, it, it's um, the way you described it, breaking it up into stages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I I think that having a framework and even, you know, doing your own research and, and, you know, there are a lot of good books out there um, on on affairs and just understanding that that it's a very common experience. It's it's a very hard experience. You know, you're not alone. And there are stages that you can kind of use to structure your experience that mm-hmm. can that can help to ground people. Yeah. Wow. There's so many gold nuggets in here. And luckily, listeners, I will be putting some notes, some into my show notes here. But I, I highly encourage everybody to just get their notepad or send it over to your partner and be like, hey, babe, let's listen to this <laughs> over at breakfast <laughs> or something. Yeah. Is there, it, could you give our listeners three takeaways that they can go and implement for themselves right now? Yeah, yeah, sure. I would say um, take care of yourself and get really tuned into what self-care means for you, you know, and I'm not talking about self-indulgence, but self-care, you know, what do you need to, uh, to just feel grounded, to feel, to feel regulated, to feel like you have some, some sense of connection to joy and pleasure. So self-care would be one major takeaway, I hope, for, for listeners. Um, and I would say that another one would be learn to mirror your partner. So learn to do reflective listening. I write about that in, in my book as well. Mirroring is a really simple thing you can do where you 
you kind of summarize or paraphrase or reflect back what your partner said. Um, and that's just a really simple tool to help your partner feel heard and, and to help, to help you be more present. And, uh, a third takeaway, um, a third takeaway would be become a a researcher. So become a relationship researcher, become a researcher of yourself Mm. and enjoy the process of, of researching and learning and discovering even when it feels mucky and shitty and hard. Uh, you know, remember that you're researching this life, this human life and, and, and it's, it's got, it's dark and it's light and, you know, and, and so that perspective I think can shift a lot for people. Yeah. We're all trying to figure this out together. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much. This was really awesome. And again, I think there's just so much here. It's very rich and they can get even more from your book. No more fighting. Mm, mm. How can people find you or find this book? Well, they can go to Amazon and um, just type in relationship book for couples and then click on my book um, or type in the title of the book, No More Fighting in My Name. It should come up. And if they want to join my my newsletter, uh, receive my newsletter and, and get blogs for me, they can sign up on my website, www.aliciamunozalloneword.com. Uh, and they can also, you know, connect with me on Instagram or, or Facebook or Twitter. Uh, well, it was fun talking to you today. Mm, thank you, Kat. It was such a pleasure connecting with you and with, with your listeners. Lovers, thank you again for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please head to eplaysex.com to subscribe to the show, connect with us and grab our sexy guides. Because our goal here is to help you to eat, play and sex better. So you can improve your sex life, your love life, which will improve every aspect of your life. We'll see you next time on Eat, Play, Sex. Thanks for tuning in, lovers. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. You can find out more about our guests and topics from our show by checking out eatplaysex.com. Until next time, don't forget to nourish your sex life.